This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Antichrist by Friedrich Nietzsche Sections 54 through 62 54. Do not let yourself be deceived. Great intellects are skeptical. Zarathustra is a skeptic. The strength, the freedom which proceed from intellectual power, from a superabundance of intellectual power, manifest themselves as skepticism. Men of fixed convictions do not count when it comes to determining what is fundamental in values and lack of values. Men of convictions are prisoners. They do not see far enough. They do not see what is below them. Whereas a man who would talk to any purpose about value and non-value must be able to see five hundred convictions beneath him and behind him. A mind that aspires to great things, and that wills the means thereto, is necessarily skeptical. Freedom from any sort of conviction belongs to strength and to an independent point of view. That grand passion, which is at once the foundation and the power of a skeptic's existence, and is both more enlightened and more despotic than he is himself, drafts the whole of his intellect into its service. It makes him unscrupulous. It gives him courage to employ unholy means. Under certain circumstances, it does not begrudge him even convictions. Conviction as a means. One may achieve a good deal by means of a conviction. A grand passion makes use of and uses up convictions. It does not yield to them. It knows itself to be sovereign. On the contrary, the need of faith, of something unconditioned by yea or nay, of Carlylism, if I may be allowed the word, is a need of weakness. The man of faith, the believer of any sort, is necessarily a dependent man. Such a man cannot posit himself as a goal, nor can he find goals within himself. The believer does not belong to himself. He can only be a means to an end. He must be used up. He needs someone to use him up. His instinct gives the highest honors to an ethic of self-effacement. He is prompted to embrace it by everything, his prudence, his experience, his vanity. Every sort of faith is in itself an evidence of self-effacement, of self-estrangement. When one reflects how necessary it is to the great majority that there be regulations to restrain them from without and hold them fast, and to what extent control or in a higher sense, slavery is the one and only condition which makes for the well-being of the weak-willed man, and especially woman, then one at once understands conviction and faith. To the man with convictions, they are his backbone. To avoid seeing many things, to be impartial about nothing, to be a party man through and through, to estimate all values strictly and infallibly, these are the conditions necessary to the existence of such a man. But by the same token, they are antagonists of the truthful man, of the truth. 
The believer is not free to answer the question, true or not true, according to the dictates of his own conscience. Integrity on this point would work his instant downfall. The pathological limitations of his vision turn the man of convictions into a fanatic. Savonarola, Luther, Rousseau, Robespierre, Saint-Simon, these types stand in opposition to the strong, emancipated spirit. But the grandiose attitudes of these sick intellects, these intellectual epileptics, are of influence upon the great masses. Fanatics are picturesque, and mankind prefers observing poses to listening to reasons. 55. One step further in the psychology of conviction, of faith. It is now a good while since I first proposed for consideration the question whether convictions are not even more dangerous enemies to truth than lies. Paren. Human all too human. 1. Aphorism 483. Translator's footnote 27. The aphorism which is headed the enemies of truth, makes the direct statement, Convictions are more dangerous enemies of truth than lies. End footnote. End paren. This time, I desire to put the question definitively. Is there any actual difference between a lie and a conviction? All the world believes that there is. But what is not believed by all the world? Every conviction has a history, its primitive forms, its stage of tentativeness and error. It becomes a conviction only after having been for a long time not one, and then for an even longer time hardly one. What if falsehood be also one of these embryonic forms of conviction? Sometimes all that is needed is a change in persons. What was a lie in the father becomes a conviction in the son. I call it lying to refuse to see what one sees, or to refuse to see it as it is. Whether the lie be uttered before witnesses or not before witnesses is of no consequence. The most common sort of lie is that by which a man deceives himself. The deception of others is a relatively rare offense. Now, this will not to see what one sees, this will not to see it as it is, is almost the first requisite for all who belong to a party of whatever sort. The party man becomes inevitably a liar. For example, the German historians are convinced that Rome was synonymous with despotism, and that the Germanic peoples brought the spirit of liberty into the world. What is the difference between this conviction and a lie? Is it to be wondered at that all partisans, including the German historians, instinctively roll the fine phrases of morality upon their tongues, that morality almost owes its very survival to the fact that the party man of every sort has need of it every moment. This is our conviction. We publish it to the whole world. We live and die for it. Let us respect all who have convictions. I have actually heard such sentiments from the mouths of anti-Semites. On the contrary, gentlemen, an anti-Semite surely does not become more respectable because he lies on principle. The priests who have more finesse in such matters, and who well understand the objection that lies against the notion of a conviction, which is to say, of a falsehood that becomes a matter of principle because it serves a purpose, have borrowed from the Jews the shrewd device of sneaking in the concepts God, the will of God, and the revelation of God at this place. Kant, too, 
with his categorical imperative, was on the same road. This was his practical reason. Translator's footnote 28. A reference, of course, to Kant's Kritik der Praktischen Vernunft. Paren, Kritik of Practical Reason. End paren, end footnote. There are questions regarding the truth or untruth of which it is not for man to decide. All the capital questions, all the capital questions of valuation, are beyond human reason. To know the limits of reason, that alone is genuine philosophy. Why did God make a revelation to man? Would God have done anything superfluous? Man could not find out for himself what was good and what was evil. So God taught him his will. Moral. The priest does not lie. The question, true or untrue, has nothing to do with such things as the priest discusses. It is impossible to lie about these things. In order to lie here, it would be necessary to know what is true. But this is more than man can know. Therefore, the priest is simply the mouthpiece of God. Such a priestly syllogism is by no means merely Jewish and Christian. The right to lie and the shrewd dodge of revelation belong to the general priestly type, to the priest of the décadence as well as to the priest of pagan times. Pagans are all those who say yes to life, and to whom God is a word signifying acquiescence in all things. The law, the will of God, the holy book, and inspiration, all these things are merely words for the conditions under which the priest comes to power, and with which he maintains his power. These concepts are to be found at the bottom of all priestly organizations, and of all priestly or priestly philosophical schemes of governments. The holy lie, common alike to Confucius, to the Code of Manu, to Mohammed, and to the Christian Church, is not even wanting in Plato. Truth is here. This means, no matter where it's heard, the priest lies. 56. In the last analysis, it comes to this. What is the end of lying? The fact that, in Christianity, holy ends are not visible is my objection to the means it deploys. Only bad ends appear. The poisoning, the calumniation, the denial of life, the despising of the body, the degradation and self-contamination of man by the concept of sin. Therefore, its means are also bad. I have a contrary feeling when I read the Code of Manu, an incomparably more intellectual and superior work, which it would be sin against the intelligence to so much as name in the same breath as the Bible. It is easy to see why. There is a genuine philosophy behind it, in it, not merely an evil-smelling mess of Jewish rabbinism and superstition. It gives even the most fastidious psychologist something to sink his teeth into. And, not to forget what is most important, it differs fundamentally from every kind of Bible. By means of it, the nobles, the philosophers and the warriors, keep the whip-hand over the majority. It is full of noble valuations. It shows a feeling of perfection, an acceptance of life, and a triumphant feeling towards self and the life. The sun shines upon the whole book. All the things on which Christianity vents its fathomless vulgarity, for example, procreation, women, and marriage, are here handled earnestly, with reverence and with love and confidence. How can anyone really put into the hands of children and ladies a book which contains such vile things as this? To avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. It is better to marry than to burn. Translator's footnote number 29. 
1 Corinthians 7, 2, 9, and footnote. And it is possible to be a Christian so long as the origin of man is Christianized, which is to say, befouled by the doctrine of the Immaculata Conceptio. I know of no book in which so many delicate and kindly things are said of women as in the Code of Manu. These old greybeards and saints have a way of being gallant to women that it would be impossible, perhaps, to surpass. The mouth of a woman, it says in one place, the breasts of a maiden, the prayer of a child, and the smoke of sacrifice are always pure. In another place, there is nothing purer than the light of the sun, the shadow cast by a cow, air, water, fire, and the breath of a maiden. Finally, in still another place, perhaps this is also a holy lie, all the orifices of the body above the navel are pure, and all below are impure. Only in the maiden is the whole body pure. 57. One catches the unholiness of Christian means in flagranti by the simple process of putting the ends sought by Christianity beside the ends sought by the Code of Manu. By putting these enormously antithetical ends under a strong light. The critic of Christianity cannot evade the necessity of making Christianity contemptible. A book of laws such as the Code of Manu has the same origin as every other good law book. It epitomizes the experience, the sagacity, and the ethical experimentation of long centuries. It brings things to a conclusion. It no longer creates. The prerequisite to a codification of this sort, is recognition of the fact that the means which establish the authority of a slowly and painfully attained truth are fundamentally different from those which one would make use of to prove it. A law book never recites the utility, the grounds, the casuistical antecedents of a law, for if it did so it would lose the imperative tone, the thou shall, on which obedience is based. The problem lies exactly here. At a certain point in the evolution of a people, the class within it of the greatest insight, which is to say, the greatest hindsight and foresight, declares that the series of experiences determining how all shall live, or can live, has come to an end. The object now is to reap as rich and as complete a harvest as possible from the days of experiment and hard experience. In consequence, the thing that is to be avoided above Everything is further experimentation, the continuation of the state in which values are fluent and are tested, chosen, and criticized ad infinitum. Against this, a double wall is set up. On the one hand, revelation, which is the assumption that the reasons lying behind the laws are not of human origin, that they were not sought out and found by a slow process and after many errors, but that they are of divine ancestry and came into being complete, perfect, without a history, as a free gift, a miracle and on the other hand, tradition, which is the assumption that the law has stood unchanged from time immemorial, and that it is impious and a crime against one's forefathers to bring it into question. The authority of the law is thus grounded on the thesis, God gave it, and the fathers lived it. The higher motive of such procedure lies in the design to distract consciousness, step by step, from its concern with notions of right living that is to say, those that have been proved to be right by wide and carefully considered experience, 
so that instinct attains to a perfect automatism, a primary necessary to every sort of mastery, to every sort of perfection in the art of life. To draw up such a law-book as Manu's means to lay before a people the possibility of future mastery, of attainable perfection. It permits them to aspire to the highest reaches of the art of life. To that end, the thing must be made unconscious. That is the aim of every holy lie. The order of castes, the highest, the dominating law, is merely the ratification of an order of nature, of a natural law of the first rank over which no arbitrary fiat, no modern idea, can exert any influence. In every healthy society there are three physiological types, gravitating towards differentiation, but mutually conditioning one another, and each of these has its own hygiene, its own sphere of work, its own special mastery and feeling of perfection. It is not Manu, but nature, that sets off in one class those who are chiefly intellectual, in another, those who are marked by muscular strength and temperament, and, in a third, those who are distinguished in neither one way or the other, but show only mediocrity. The last named represents the great majority, and the first two the select. The superior caste, I call it the fewest, has, as the most perfect, the privileges of the few. It stands for happiness, for beauty, for everything good upon earth. Only the most intellectual of men have any right to beauty, to the beautiful. Only in them can goodness escape being weakness. Pulcrum est paucorum hominum. Translator's footnote 30. Few men are noble. End footnote. Goodness is a privilege. Nothing could be more unbecoming to them than uncouth manners or a pessimistic look or an eye that sees ugliness, or indignation against the general aspect of things. Indignation is the privilege of the chandala, so is pessimism. The world is perfect, so prompts the instinct of the intellectual, the instinct of the man who says yes to life. Imperfection, whatever is inferior to us, distance, the pathos of distance, even the chandala themselves, are parts of this perfection. The most intelligent men, like the strongest, find their happiness where others would find only disaster, in the labyrinth, in being hard with themselves and with others, in effort. Their delight is in self-mastery. In them asceticism becomes second nature, a necessity, an instinct. They regard a difficult task as a privilege. It is to them a recreation to play with burdens that would crush all others. Knowledge, a form of asceticism. They are the most honorable kind of men, but that does not prevent them being the most cheerful and the most amiable. They rule not because they want to, but because they are. They are not at liberty to play second. The second caste. To this belong the guardians of the law, the keepers of order and security, the more noble warriors, above all, the king as the highest form of warrior, judge, and preserver of the law. The second in rank constitute the executive arm of the intellectuals, the next to them in rank, taking from them all that is rough in the business of ruling, their followers, their right hand, their most apt disciples. In all this, I repeat, there is nothing arbitrary, nothing made up. Whatever is to the contrary is made up. By it, nature is brought to shame. The order of caste, the order of rank, simply formulates the supreme law of life itself. 
the separation of the three types is necessary to the maintenance of society, and to the evolution of higher types, and the highest types. The inequality of rights is essential to the existence of any rights at all. A right is a privilege. Everyone enjoys the privileges that accord with his state of existence. Let us not underestimate the privileges of the mediocre. Life is always harder as one mounts the heights. The cold increases, responsibility increases. A high civilization is a pyramid. It can stand only on a broad base. Its primary prerequisite is a strong and soundly consolidated mediocrity. The handicrafts, commerce, agriculture, science, the greater part of art, in brief, the whole range of occupational activities, are compatible only with mediocre ability and aspiration. Such callings would be out of place for exceptional men. The instincts which belong to them stand as much opposed to aristocracy as to anarchism. The fact that a man is publicly useful, that he is a wheel, a function, is evidence of a natural predisposition. It is not society, but the only sort of happiness that the majority are capable of that makes them intelligent machines. To the mediocre, mediocrity is a form of happiness. They have a natural instinct for mastering one thing, for specialization. It would be altogether unworthy of a profound intellect to see anything objectionable in mediocrity in itself. It is, in fact, the first prerequisite to the appearance of the exceptional. It is a necessary condition to a high degree of civilization. When the exceptional man handles the mediocre man with more delicate fingers than he applies to himself or to his equals, this is not merely kindness of heart, it is simply his duty. Whom do I hate most heartily among the rabbles of today? The rabble of socialists, the apostles to the chandala, who undermine the working man's instincts, his pleasures, his feeling of contentment with his petty existence, who make him envious and teach him revenge. Wrong never lies in unequal rights. It lies in the assertion of equal rights. What is bad? But I have already answered. All that proceeds from weakness, from envy, from revenge. The anarchist and the Christian have the same ancestry. 58. In point of fact, the end for which one lies makes a great difference, whether one preserves thereby or destroys. There is a perfect likeness between Christian and anarchist. Their object, their instinct, points only toward destruction. One need only turn to history for proof of this. There it appears with appalling distinctness. We have just studied a code of religious legislation whose object it was to convert the conditions which cause life to flourish into an eternal social organization. Christianity found its mission in putting an end to such an organization, because life flourished under it. There the benefits that reason had produced during long ages of experiment and insecurity were applied to the most remote uses, and an effort was made to bring in a harvest that should be as large, as rich, and as complete as possible. Here, on the contrary, the harvest is blighted overnight. That which stood there, Ere Perennis, the Imperium Romanum, the most magnificent form of organization under difficult conditions that has ever been achieved, and compared to which, everything before it and after it,
appears as patchwork, bungling, dilettantism. Those holy anarchists made it a matter of piety to destroy the world, which is to say, the Imperium Romanum, so that in the end not a stone stood upon another, and even Germans and other such louts were able to become its masters. The Christian and the anarchist, both are décadents, both are incapable of any act that is not disintegrating, poisonous, degenerating, blood-sucking. Both have an instinct of mortal hatred of everything that stands up and is great and has durability and promises life a future. Christianity was the vampire of the Imperium Romanum. Overnight it destroyed the vast achievement of the Romans, the conquest of the soil for a great culture that could await its time. Can it be that this fact is not yet understood? The Imperium Romanum that we know, and that the history of the Roman provinces teaches us to know better and better, this most admirable of all works of art in the grand manner, was merely the beginning, and the structure to follow was not to prove its worth for thousands of years. To this day, nothing on a like scale, subspecie aeterni, has been brought into being, or even dreamed of. This organization was strong enough to withstand bad emperors. The accident of personality has nothing to do with such things. The first principle of all genuinely great architecture. But it was not strong enough to stand up against the corruptest of all forms of corruption. Against Christians. These stealthy worms, which under the cover of night, mist, and duplicity crept upon every individual, sucking him dry of all earnest interest in real things, of all instinct for reality, this cowardly, effeminate, and sugar-coated gang gradually alienated all souls, step by step, from that colossal edifice, turning against it all the meritorious, manly, and noble natures that had found in the cause of Rome their own cause, their own serious purpose, their own pride, the sneakishness of hypocrisy, the secrecy of the conventicle, concepts as black as hell, such as the sacrifice of the innocent, the unio mystica in the drinking of blood, above all, the slowly rekindled fire of revenge, of chandala revenge, all that sort of thing became master of Rome, the same kind of religion which, in a pre-existent form, Epicurus had combated. One has but to read Lucretius to know what Epicurus made war upon, not paganism, but Christianity, which is to say, the corruption of souls by means of the concept of guilt, punishment, and immortality. He combated the subterranean cults, the whole of latent Christianity. To deny immortality was already a form of genuine salvation. Epicurus had triumphed, and every respectable intellect in Rome was Epicurean. When Paul appeared, Paul, the Chandala hatred of Rome, of the world in the flesh and inspired by genius, the Jew, the eternal Jew par excellence, what he saw was how, with the aid of the small sectarian Christian movement that stood apart from Judaism, a world conflagration might be kindled, how, with the symbol of God on the cross, all secret seditions, all the fruits of anarchistic intrigues within the empire might be amalgamated into one immense power. Salvation is of the Jews. Christianity is the formula for exceeding and summing up the subterranean cults of all varieties, that of Osiris, that of the Great Mother, 
that of Mithras, for instance. In his discernment of this fact, the genius of Paul showed itself. His instinct was here so sure that, with reckless violence to the truth, he put the ideas which lent fascination to every sort of Chandala religion into the mouth of the Savior, as his own inventions, and not only into the mouth. He made out of him something that even a priest of Mithras could understand. This was his revelation at Damascus. He grasped the fact that he needed the belief in immortality in order to rob the world of its value, that the concept of hell would master Rome, that the notion of a beyond is the death of life. Nihilist and Christian, they rhyme in German, and they do more than rhyme. 59. The whole labor of the ancient world gone for naught. I have no word to describe the feelings that such an enormity arouses in me. And considering the fact that its labor was merely preparatory, that with adamantine self-consciousness it laid only the foundations for a work to go on for thousands of years, the whole meaning of antiquity disappears. To what end the Greeks? To what end the Romans? All the prerequisites to a learned culture, all the methods of science were already there. Man had already perfected the great and incomparable art of reading profitably. That first necessity to the tradition of culture, the unity of the sciences, the natural sciences, in alliance with mathematics and mechanics, were on the right road. The sense of fact, the last and most valuable of all the senses, had its schools, and its traditions were already centuries old. Is all this properly understood? Every essential to the beginning of the work was ready, and the most essential, it cannot be said too often, are methods, and also the most difficult to develop, and the longest opposed by habit and laziness. What we have today reconquered, with unspeakable self-discipline for ourselves, for certain bad instincts, certain Christian instincts still lurk in our bodies, that is to say, the keen eye for reality, the cautious hand, patience and seriousness in the smallest things, the whole integrity of knowledge, all these things were already there, and had been there for two thousand years. More, there was also a refined and excellent tact and taste, not as mere brain-drilling, not as German culture with its loutish manners, but as body, as bearing, as instinct, in short, as reality all gone for naught. Overnight, it became merely a memory. The Greeks, the Romans, instinctive nobility, taste, methodical inquiry, genius for organization and administration, faith in, and the will to secure the future of man, a great yes to everything, entering into the Imperium Romanum, and palpable to all the senses, a grand style that was beyond mere art. But it had become reality, truth, life, all overwhelmed in a night but not by a convulsion of nature, not trampled to death by Teutons and others of heavy hoof, but brought to shame by crafty, sneaking, invisible, anemic vampires, not conquered, only sucked dry. Hidden vengefulness, petty envy became master, everything wretched, intrinsically ailing and invaded by bad feelings. The whole ghetto world of the soul was once on top, one needs but read any of the Christian agitators, for example, St. Augustine, in order to realize, in order to smell, what filthy fellows came to the top. 
It would be an error, however, to assume that there was any lack of understanding in the leaders of the Christian movement. Ah, but they were clever, clever to the point of holiness, these fathers of the Church. What they lacked was something quite different. Nature neglected, perhaps forgot, to give them even the most modest endowment of respectable, of upright, of cleanly instincts. Between ourselves, they are not even men. If Islam despises Christianity, it has the thousandfold right to do so. Islam at least assumes that it is dealing with men. 60. Christianity destroyed for us the whole harvest of ancient civilization, and later it also destroyed for us the whole harvest of Mohammedan civilization. The wonderful culture of the Moors in Spain, which was fundamentally nearer to us and appealed more to our senses and tastes than that of Rome and Greek, was trampled down, I do not say by what sort of feet. Why? Because it had to thank noble and manly instincts for its origin, because it said yes to life, even to the rare and refined luxuriousness of Moorish life. The Crusaders later made war on something before which it would have been more fitting for them to have groveled in the dust, a civilization beside which even that of our nineteenth century seems very poor and very senile. What they wanted, of course, was booty. The Orient was rich. Let us put aside our prejudices. The Crusades were a higher form of piracy, nothing more. The German nobility, which is fundamentally a Viking nobility, was in its element there. The Church knew only too well how the German nobility was to be won. The German noble, always the Swiss guard of the Church, always in the service of every bad instinct of the Church, but well paid. Consider the fact that it is precisely the aid of German swords and German blood and valor that has enabled the Church to carry through its war to the death upon everything noble on earth. At this point a host of painful questions suggest themselves. The German nobility stands outside the history of the higher civilization. The reason is obvious. Christianity, alcohol, the two great means of corruption. Intrinsically, there should be no more choice between Islam and Christianity than there is between an Arab and a Jew. The decision is already reached. Nobody remains at liberty to choose here. Either a man is a chandala, or he is not. War to the knife with Rome, peace and friendship with Islam. This was the feeling, this was the act of that great free spirit, that genius among German emperors, Frederick II. What? Must a German first be a genius, a free spirit, before he can feel decently? I can't make out how a German could ever feel Christian. Sixty-one. Here it becomes necessary to call up a memory that must be a hundred times more painful to Germans. The Germans have destroyed for Europe the last great harvest of civilization that Europe was ever to reap, the Renaissance. Is it understood at last, will it ever be understood, what the Renaissance was? The transvaluation of Christian values, an attempt, with all available means, all instincts, and all the resources of genius, to bring about a triumph of the opposite values, the more noble values. This has been the one great war of the past. There has never been a more critical question than that of the Renaissance. It is my question, too. 
There has never been a form of attack more fundamental, more direct, or more violently delivered by a whole front upon the center of the enemy. To attack at the critical place, at the very seat of Christianity, and there enthrone the more noble values, that is to say, to insinuate them into the instincts, into the most fundamental needs and appetites of those sitting there, I see before me the possibility of a perfectly heavenly enchantment and spectacle. It seems to me to scintillate with all the vibrations of a fine and delicate beauty. And within it there is not so divine, so infernally divine, that one might search in vain for thousands of years for another such possibility. I see a spectacle so rich in significance, at the same time so wonderfully full of paradox, that it should arouse all the gods on Olympus to immortal laughter. Caesar Borgia as Pope. Am I understood? Well, then, that would have been the sort of triumph I alone am longing for today. By it, Christianity would have been swept away. What happened? A German monk, Luther, came to Rome. This monk, with all the vengeful instincts of an unsuccessful priest in him, raised a rebellion against the Renaissance in Rome, instead of grasping, with profound thanksgiving, the miracle that had taken place, the conquest of Christianity at its capital. Instead of this, his hatred was stimulated by the spectacle. A religious man thinks only of himself. Luther saw only the depravity of the papacy at the very moment when the opposite was becoming apparent. The old corruption, the peccatum originale, Christianity itself, no longer occupied the papal chair. Instead there was life. Instead there was the triumph of life. Instead there was a great yea to all lofty, beautiful, and daring things. And Luther restored the church. He attacked it. The Renaissance, an event without meaning, a great futility. Ah, these Germans, what they have not cost us. Futility. That has always been the work of the Germans. The Reformation, Leibniz, Kant, and so-called German philosophy, the war of liberation, the empire. Every time, a futile substitute for something that once existed, for something irrecoverable. These Germans, I confess, are my enemies. I despise all their uncleanliness in concept and valuation, their cowardice before every honest yea and nay. For nearly a thousand years they have tangled and confused everything their fingers have touched. They have on the conscience all the halfway measures, all the three-eighths way measures that Europe is sick of. They also have on their conscience the uncleanest variety of Christianity that exists, and the most incurable and indestructible, Protestantism. If mankind never manages to get rid of Christianity, the Germans will be to blame. 62. With this I come to a conclusion and pronounce my judgment. I condemn Christianity. I bring against the Christian Church the most terrible of all the accusations that an accuser has ever had in his mouth. It is to me the greatest of all imaginable corruptions. It seeks to work the ultimate corruption, the worst possible corruption. The Christian Church has left nothing untouched by its depravity. It has turned every value into worthlessness, and every truth into a lie, and every integrity into baseness of soul. Let anyone dare to speak to me of its humanitarian blessings. Its deepest necessities range it against any effort to abolish distress. It lives by distress. It creates distress. 
to make itself immortal. For example, the worm of sin. It was the church that first enriched mankind with this misery, the equality of souls before God, this fraud, this pretext for the rancune of the base-minded, this explosive concept, ending in revolution, the modern era, and the notion of overthrowing the whole social order. This is Christian dynamite, the humanitarian blessings of Christianity, forsooth, to breed out of humanitas, a self-contradiction, an art of self-pollution, a will to lie at any price, an aversion and contempt for all the good and honest instincts. All this, to me, is the humanitarianism of Christianity. Parasitism, as the only practice of the Church, with its anemic and holy ideals, sucking all the blood, all the love, all the hope out of life. The beyond, as the will to deny all reality, the cross as the distinguishing mark of the most subterranean conspiracy ever heard of, against health, beauty, well-being, intellect, kindness of soul, against life itself. This eternal accusation against Christianity I shall write upon all walls, wherever walls are to be found. I have letters that even the blind will be able to see. I call Christianity the one great curse, the one great intrinsic depravity, the one great instinct of revenge, for which no means are venomous enough or secret, subterranean, and small enough. I call it the one immortal blemish upon the human race. And mankind reckons time from the disnifastus, when this fatality befell, from the first day of Christianity. Why not rather from its last, from today? The transvaluation of all values. End The Antichrist by Friedrich Nietzsche This recording is in the public domain.